0: okay looks like i'm live Uh, so good morning good afternoon good evening Uh, welcome to free association Um, this is an evening show for me it's 7 35 in newcastle it's an afternoon show for the states um i'm not completely sure what asia pacific is doing but uh I think it's already tomorrow morning in uh in australia or pretty close to it so good morning so it's a breakfast show for australia an afternoon show for the states and an evening show for me but all i'm really going to do with this one is take another look at BitChute and see if there's anything new since since this morning show So, let's have a look at it. shoot. I don't think very much has happened in between. Maybe, well, there was an episode of the Duran that happened at lunchtime, so I might play a little bit of that. I've still got somebody uploading Stargate Atlantis, I've got Heroes season four, Farscape season four. What else have we got on here? I'm going to have a look at the news and politics section. Just to narrow it down a little bit. So, we've got some Alex Jones. I'm not a fan of Alex Jones, really. Some of his guests are all right, but I was never really a fan of his presentation style. Too histrionic. There's a little bit of Joe Rogan, the key was called.
1: The simple truth that we all know, we all know, is that if you take away guns, first off, there are probably 400 million guns, something like that. What, what's the number? I think it's around 350 million, if I'm not mistaken, guns in the United States right now. And it's an estimate because they don't fully know. But there basically are as many guns as people, something like that, in the United States right now. Um, if you say, OK, we're going to take away 100 million guns and we're going to make it harder for 18 year olds to get guns, et cetera, et etc., uh, what will happen is that bad guys will be the only people to have guns. There are 393.3 million guns in the United States right now. There are an awful lot of new gun owners in the United States over the last two years, ourselves included, because we realized, especially living in Los Angeles, we could not depend on the defunded police and the ridiculous district attorneys to defend us as riots literally went by our house. So the point is that you can take away guns from people. And who will give up guns? Who will, who will do a buyback? Now, they always say a buyback on guns, except a buyback would be if the same person who sold you the gun bought it back. This is a buyback when the government is going to give you money for it. It doesn't really buy back. I don't think that's the technical uh, term on that one. But the simple truth is, The more that you say, okay, we'll get some of these guns off the streets, good people will give up their guns. Good guys who have decided to defend themselves will give up their guns. The bad guys will still have the guns. This is a point, there's a clip going around uh, Twitter right now that's going viral, that Joe Rogan has been making for quite some time. And I
2: don't think it's wise to take the guns away from the people and leave all the power to the government. We see how they are, even with an armed populace, they still have... A tendency towards totalitarianism and the more increased power and control you have over people the easier it is for them to do what they do and there's a natural inclination when you are a person in power to try to hold more power and acquire more power and it's never there's never an inclination to give more power back to the people to give more freedoms back to the people freedoms lost are rarely regained how do you stop that? No one knows how to stop that. What's what the answer? Is the answer
1: take everyone's guns? Well, they're not going to give their guns up. So it's going to, you're going to have, only criminals are going to have guns. An interesting line there. Uh, no one knows how to stop that. I, I think there are some ways to stop that. Actually, we're going to do a cold close with Thomas Sowell uh, from an interview I did with him a couple years ago where he talks about how you can stop it and that you can actually stop the ever encroaching government. You just kind of have to have the will to do it. Uh, but who in this, if you've been watching this show from the beginning, like, who has made sense in these clips that we've showed you? Was it, was it Joe Rogan right there saying we have a mental health problem, not a gun problem? Was it Jordan Peterson talking about the inch by inch that they'll come get you? Uh, was it Ted Cruz saying that, in essence, th- this is never going to stop, that the elites have it one way and that they want you to live another way that we know they don't live as they defund the police and make sure that your neighborhoods are more dangerous? Is it those people that are making sense? Or, or did you watch this show? And do you think that Justin Trudeau made sense as he made sure, as he pushes this through Canadian Parliament, that the average person in Canada will not be able to buy or sell a gun and defend their family? Uh, Or was it uh, it Joy Reid who you thought made sense there, who said that the shooter did not have a mental health problem?
3: There was no mental health issue with the individual who stole the futures of 19 children in Uvalde, Texas.
1: Or was it Chuck Schumer who you thought, made sense there, who said that the MAGA Republicans never get enough blood, that they have this endless bloodlust. No amount of bloodshed seems to be enough for MAGA Republicans. It's so obvious, if you if you just calmly try to think about these things, what is going on here? And uh, I think, I
0: think. Right, let me stop him there, because he's talking very specifically about the United States. He's not talking about any other country in the world, really. Uh, this this skill shooting problem is predominantly a problem of the United States. So it's something specific to the United States. That's the cause of it. I mean, we've had one or two in the last 50 years, we haven't had very many at all. They have two a week in the States they have more possibly. There's a like one a fortnight. It's ridiculous. So there's there's definitely a problem with something going on specific to the United States. It might be more than one thing. It might not just be one thing, but there's definitely something specific to the United States with this school shootings business. So, um, all of these general things about the government taking your guns in most places, people, in most places in Europe, at least people don't have guns. It's not a, it's not a normal thing to have a gun under your bed in Britain it's just it just isn't we don't think like that we don't we don't even consider the, the possibility of that and uh, people don't wander around as I mean the police wander around with guns but that's all everybody else is quite happy going about their business without without any guns at all and uh, not all that worried about it because they know other people aren't carrying guns so the, the two solutions really, the two extremes at least are everybody carries a gun or nobody carries a gun. but somewhere in between, there's there's a solution where enough people carry your guns to make it make a difference, but not everybody because I, I don't want your average... Uh, your average citizen of Newcastle carrying a gun because they're all idiots basically. So if you want to if a large proportion of the population are idiots, so you want to make guns available to idiots, of course people are going to go and start killing kids because they're idiots. So I think that's probably the problem is there's more idiocy in the United States than there is in other places. I don't know. It might not be that, it could be something completely different. But that's one possibility.
1: That if we calmly explain ourselves, if we fight earnestly and honestly, that that, like most of the issues of the day, uh, we will win, but they will not stop. They will not stop. It is as simple as that.
0: All right, so that was Dave Rubin with a clip of Joe Rogan. It's handy that it can then put joe rogan's name in the title of the, of the clip um so that's that's clickbait as much as anything but i'm i'm probably going to do the same thing so i'm not going to complain about it it's just uh, fairly obvious clickbait so let's see what else we've got A little bit of the Duran, I think. This is from this afternoon, my time, and it's Alex, Alex, and Gonzalo Lira. And eventually, shoot uh, will come up with the goods. It takes a little bit of time. Maybe I'll do that again. No, we're not going to get the Duran, so let's try something else. and politics section there's got to be some GB news in there somewhere it being bit shoot of course there's a lot of uh, talk of Interdimensional control of the Earth and all of that. He's a little bit of Alexander Mercuris I think I played some of this last night. Actually, no, it may not may not have been this one.
2: Video footage from Severodonetsk shows Russian troops now in the center of the city moving around calmly and without apparently much fear of being attacked by Ukrainian troops, which suggests that the Russians have successfully stormed at least the uh, central areas of Severodonetsk and probably or possibly most of the residential areas also. Now, this has created some discussion on various Russian blogs as to whether or not the Ukrainian troops who were defending Severodonetsk fled in a disorganized way, as did the Ukrainian troops who were defending Liman a few days ago, or whether um, instead this was an orderly withdrawal to uh, more defendable places, perhaps to Lysychansk, or possibly to the industrial facilities which exist outside Severodonetsk, as they do outside most of the big cities of the Donbass. Well, I'm not in a position to say one way or the other. What I would say is that most of the footage shows unusually little damage for this wall to the residential buildings, which suggests that the Ukrainian collapse was rapid. There were some earlier reports that su- uh, an entire unit of the Ukrainian army essentially surrendered in Severodonetsk. And that may suggest that there was a major an element of collapse, even if other troops perhaps did withdraw in a more ordered way. So it seems that the battle of Severodonetsk is now almost ended. And perhaps we fall very long, we will see the battle for Lizychansk. Lizychansk is a more defendable place. It's on higher ground and um, there seem to be more determined. The U- Ukrainian troops there perhaps are more determined. And of course, if they've been reinforced by the troops from Severodonetsk, then they might decide to put up more of a fight. Of course, an alternative would be for all of these Ukrainian troops, the ones in Severodonetsk and the ones in Lysychansk, to withdraw completely from these two towns, which are obviously undefendable. But, as I've discussed previously, that doesn't seem to be what the Ukrainian political leadership is inclined to do. Anyway, One interesting thing which has happened is that we now have an eyewitness account of the fighting in Donbass, in Severodonetsk, from a BBC journalist, and I'm going to quote it extensively. Now, the BBC, of course, takes a strongly pro-Ukrainian view in the war, there's little pretense on the part of the BBC in reporting the war in Ukraine of its famous balance Uh, on the contrary as I said it is straightforwardly pro-Ukrainian and this report from this BBC journalist reflects that fact that makes this report in my opinion even more useful in that it does give us a fairly clear idea of the nature of the fighting in Donbass and of what Ukrainian troops are experiencing there. Anyway, the journalist in question is Quentin Somerville, and he re- is sending his report from Rizychansk, and he writes, um, he writes as follows. The title of the article is, I watched from afar Russia's latest merciless assault on Severodonetsk. And the article goes on to say the following. I'm going to Pass it in a few places. I'm going to mention one or two points that stand out for me even as I read it. Anyway, to proceed with to to, to proceed with the article itself. Russian forces have entered the city of Severodonetsk as they continue their attempts to capture the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. One of the region's governors says that the bombardment of the industrial center is so intense that they have given up counting casualties. Just days ago, I watched from a rooftop in Lizichansk, as on the horizon, its twin city of Severodonetsk was being bombed indiscriminately. Shells were landing every minute on its length and breadth. Severodonetsk was burning. That's a contrast, as I said, to some of these film images which appear to show uh, a large number of buildings in Severodonetsk in the centre of the city, still intact. Perhaps the shelling is concentrated on the industrial areas where perhaps most of the Ukrainian troops have withdrawn to. I'm only guessing, and of course I'm not in a position to judge the accuracy of all of these reports, but the films that I have seen do seem to show large number of buildings intact that's all i'm going to say about this note that the governor of lugansk region uh, admits that they have given up counting the casualties which does suggest that casualties are extremely high these are ukrainian casualties and his use of the word casualties suggests that we're talking about military casualties rather than civilians And as we will see further from the
4: report,
2: it's likely that there are anyway few people in the city, in Severodonetsk or Lizichansk. Anyway, to continue with the article, um, uh, the BBC article, Lizichansk itself has been drained of life. A few people still go out on the streets, but they are mostly deserted. Artillery fire is a regular threat. The air carried on the summer breeze is gritty with dust from smoke and pulverized buildings. Now, as I said, that says that most of the people have left, uh, the the great majority of the people have left Belizychansk. I assume the same is true of Severodonetsk, or if they are still around they're presumably hiding in their basements uh, obviously staying out of the battle which again going back to that earlier point about them have the ukrainians having stopped counting the casualties that suggests that we are talking about ukrainian military casualties anyway to continue with the article having to fail to con- conquer all of ukraine Russian forces are now targeting Donbass, made up of the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. If Severodonetsk and Lizychansk fall, the whole of Lugansk would be occupied. Here, Russia isn't fighting a campaign of attrition. It's waging a war of oblivion. And for the moment, on this front, it is winning. Sergei Gaidai. The governor of Lugansk now says that all critical infrastructure in Severodonetsk has been destroyed. Previously, he suggested that Ukrainian forces may have to withdraw from the city and Lysychansk. The scene of devastation in a third city, Rubizhne, in peacetime just a short drive to the north, shows what Russia's unrelenting, artillery fire is capable of looking from Lizichansk into the distance there is now a blot on the emerald green landscape the small city is gone scoured from the earth but we don't need to accept some of this dramatic language clearly there is still buildings there they've not just all been obliterated or destroyed but anyway, I don't doubt that, there is, that it is a scene of great devastation. To continue with the article. The way it, he means Rubizhnoy, fell some two weeks ago, marks an important shift in how Vladimir Putin's forces are now fighting the war. Gone are long armoured columns and tank and infantry attacks seen in the first months in favour of large-scale artillery barrages, as many as 1,500 shells a day in Rubizhne, to wipe out resistance before any ground advance. Now, let's just take a step back and consider the implications of that statement. Now, the first thing I would say, and the one that really stands out, is about the intensity of the shelling, of the Russian shelling. Now, this journalist, this BBC journalist, says that in Rubizhne, an important place, it's a major battle, not a huge place. The Russians were shelling Rubizhne, were shelling the Ukrainian troops in Rubizhne at a rate of one thousand five hundred shells. That's 1500 rounds of ammunition a day that's just one day now i'm not sure how this is counted i'm not sure who's doing the counting but just consider the implications of this when the united states first decided to send m m triple seven howitzers to um ukraine this is some weeks ago it sent those howitzers together with i believe it was 150,000 rounds of ammunition now that sounds like a lot but a tenth of that is what the russians used used every day in a place like Rubizhne, a relatively small place which is only one part of the ukrainian battlefield of the donbass battlefield
4: those one
2: hundred and fifty thousand rounds of ammunition that the United States was selling, sending with that um, dispatch of howitzers, would be used up in, frankly, almost no time, given the intensity of the shelling that we're talking about. Now, I have to qualify this. Firstly, obviously, the United States has up the amount of ammunition it is selling to Ukraine since uh, um, it sent that first delivery of 150,000 rounds. But even then, if you look at the figures, it doesn't come anywhere close to the amount of ammunition that the Russians are using, the number of rounds of ammunition that the Russians are using across Donbass on any particular day. The second is that, of course, we have to be careful about this figure of 1,500 shells a day on Rubizhne. I mean, armies do count rounds of ammunition, so it's not impossible that the Ukrainians are keeping some kind of track of the number of rounds expended in a place like Rubizhne, but, of course... We can't be certain that these figures, this figure of 1,500 rounds, which to me sounds pretty awesome, we can't be sure that this is completely or entirely accurate. But there we are. What is likely, what is, it seems to me, almost
4: certain.
0: All right, so that's uh, Alexander Mercurius. Going to go back to the news and politics section. If there's anything else that stands out that's worth playing, I think we've just hit the 25 minute mark, so maybe another five or ten minutes, and then I'll call it a night. No, I think that's probably it, unless something jumps out at me. Oh, here we go. There's something about uh, British politics here. So this is from GB News. And it's Darren McCaffrey talking about uh, discontent in the Conservative Party.
2: MP, submitted a of no confidence in the Prime Minister this afternoon. John Stevenson, MP for Carlisle since 2010, said he was deeply disappointed by rule breaking parties in Downing Street. His submission takes the total number of those publicly calling on Mr. Johnson to resign to 28. A confidence vote in Boris Johnson's leadership will be held, as you know, if 54 letters are received from Conservative MPs. Let's turn to our political editor, Darren McCaffrey, who joins me now. Uh, Hi to you, Darren. Um, She's not written a letter, at least not that we know, but Andrea Ledson's intervention, critical comments of the Prime Minister, really struck me because she was seen as one of the great tribunes of Brexit, uh, somebody who would be very much on side with the Prime Minister. And when she starts coming out and joining the, the Greek chorus
4: of dissent, you start to scratch your head a bit, don't you? Yeah, I think this is the real problem in many ways for Boris Johnson, Colin, which is essentially uh, that there is no one group moving against the Prime Minister, it seems. That these are very disparate people from different sections of the party, different sections. Of the country. You're right in saying uh, Andrea Ledson. Now, we don't know whether she's written a letter or not, but she certainly expressed her discontent with the Prime Minister, calling uh, his behaviour and what happened during the party gate scandal as unacceptable failures of leadership, uh, leadership of the Prime Minister. But you add to that some conservative peace in southern England who are maybe in Lib Dem. At marginal seats, or the Lib Dems, are the second largest party, some of those are pretty uncomfortable and have come out against the Prime Minister. Then they're all kind of one-nation Conservatives, those that have never really liked Boris Johnson's kind of leadership style, or indeed the direction he's taken the party. And adding to that, a couple of others who may well have lost their jobs. Andrew Lenson does fall into that camp as well under Boris Johnson. You start to get a sense that there is a bit of a movement, quite a strong movement now against the Prime Minister. Events are moving... Pretty quickly, it only seemed like a week ago in the wake of the Sucre report that the Prime Minister may well have passed that moment of danger, but that certainly doesn't feel like we're in that position. Now, For former Colin, there is a, a, a real possibility, a real possibility that the Prime Minister may face a vote of confidence as early as next week. Now, the man who knows... This, and there only is one person about how many letters have actually been submitted, is Sir Graham Brady. He is not going to tell us uh, this week. He only reveals uh, that to the Prime Minister uh, when Parliament is sitting. Uh, But it is entirely possible we've even met that threshold already. It's certainly going to be quite a tricky couple of weeks for the Prime Minister. As Alex Ferguson put it, squeaky bomb time for Boris Johnson.
0: right here's a little bit more from gb news
5: from the complainant
3: well i think police need some information but they've got to be proportionate and they've got to be sensitive and they've got to achieve that uh reclamation of data in the quickest and uh, most delicate way possible. And what actually, I think it, it's reasonable that the police need perhaps some telephone data, but there's a concern that when we already have uh, a lousy rate for rape convictions in the United Kingdom, that then rape victims who are obviously to a huge majority female are then going through a very traumatic experience again as part of the investigation. And I had one uh, case study on the radio this morning about uh, a rape survivor who didn't get her telephone back for three years. Which seems completely unjustified, and um, I don't. You know, there is police training for handling these types of offences, sexual offences, um, but and I don't doubt that police have good intentions. But but clearly, as the information commissioner has flagged up today, is going wrong. It seems to be going wrong on a regular basis, and I think a lot more guidance needs to be urgently issued because ultimately. Um, we're not dealing with someone who's lost their phone in the pub, we're dealing with victims of rape and sexual assault. So I think a much greater sensitivity um, needs to be used, but we also need to try and do a lot better on rape prosecutions.
5: Yeah. Okay, so that's that's what's happening. Why are the police taking this sort of data, Silky? That is a very good question. Um, I mean, we've been investigating this area and asked the information commissioner to do the report that they put out today um, for years because we've been contacted by lots of women who have gone through this process and then find that they are effectively under investigation and not the suspect, um, that masses of their phone data is taken, that they were told it would be kept for 100 years. Um, And you think about what you have on your phone, the information you have on there that police can take is more than they would find in a house search. You've got Albums and albums of photos, messages that could stretch over a decade, um, contact lists, um, work emails, so much sensitive data as well. Um, and I think ultimately the, the, the why question, why are police doing this? Well, too often we see that they treat women that report these offences as either mad or bad, that they're either mentally unwell or they're lying. And that's the kind of underlying assumption. It's awful to say it, but that is the underlying assumption too often that they have. And that's why we are now, we we have both record numbers of rape and sexual offences being reported and a record failure to prosecute just 1% of rapes are actually being prosecuted it is a real source of shame it must be also michael this is in order to protect the um the defendant effectively the accused is this because if there is a message on a woman's phone that says I, you know to her friend saying i sat with this guy last night i'm slightly regretting it i mean look I'm, i'm character characterizing here these the stereotype that's what the police are presumably looking for, do they have a responsibility to also protect the man in the majority of cases who might be accused?
6: Yeah, and I, I sort of see both sides of this. The police are going to obviously want as much information as they can possibly get. On the other hand, of course, people should be entitled to privacy, people who have been through an extremely you know, traumatic attack, yeah. um, victim of a horrific crime, um, and... You know something has gone badly wrong here I, the statistics i saw were that fewer than 20 percent of people who are raped report to the police now and can, uh, charge rate of 1.6 percent. so specifically on this crime there is something clearly going very badly wrong and you know as i said i do you know the, the police argument will be will we need the maximum amount of information but on the other hand i do i do take on board that people nowadays they you know they have the whole lives on their phones pretty much don't they yeah. you know very, you know, private photos and things like that. That, especially after such a traumatic event in their life, they may be feeling, you know, exceptionally vulnerable. Anyway,
5: and and I can't
4: believe. I mean, at this.
0: All right, so there you go. I think we're, we're pretty much at we thirty-five minutes now. Coming up to thirty-five minutes, so I'm going to call that a night. Uh, well, thanks for listening, and I'll be back again tomorrow. I'll do two shows again tomorrow. And then uh, I'll try and do two shows again on Thursday as well. And If I can get into the habit of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then that that that's a good habit to be in, I think. And it gives me a break on Friday to prep the show for for Saturday. And then a break. Well, I usually post something on Monday anyway. So I'll do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I'll have a break Friday and come back Saturday with a good, with a good show on Saturday as well. All right, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and